You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and Aaron Shaler, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending. I'm your host, Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and I'm here with Rob Kendall and Chris Spangle, who is the hidden gem of the Leaders and Legends podcast. He he runs our little board and he gives us inspiration. And you can't necessarily know if you are not his Facebook friend, but he has the best hair on the planet. <laughs> If ABC ever does a, a remake of the Six Million Dollar Man episode with Sasquatch, my man Chris Chewbacca Spangle would be absolutely there. I'm that's just stone cold jealousy. Spangle. I consider myself the hidden gem of Indianapolis, really. Well, it's jealousy, and and make sure that everybody knows this podcast would not be happening without Chris. It would not have started without Chris. We all know him. Uh, anybody who who values his contributions to public discussion will say we love you and thank you for joining us with Rob Kendall. Absolutely. I needed a Republican on the show besides me <laughs> and Spangle, you're up. <laughs> uh, Rob, it's so nice to have you here. Well, you have achieved so much, Chris, <laughs> and you don't deserve any of the success you no, have. But, no, I know uh, but, that. But congratulations. No, this. thank you for having me. This show is so awesome. We were talking about before we went on the air. Just I love the guests you have because you get people that you know, that you've seen for years, but you don't know their story, and you pull a lot of really interesting things out of people. I was telling Rob off air, we'll say Rob and Robert, uh, there are guys that I've seen at, uh, uh, I've been around for a long time. And I've always seen people like Jim Morris around, but I had no idea who Jim Morris was or what he did or what he accomplished. And so it's been a great, as a libertarian, fighting against the establishment, Rob. Yeah. It's weird to meet them. Yeah. And they're <laughs> not actually the devil. Right. It, I thought in Kendall's contract, we had to call him Dear Leader <laughs> during the entire it, podcast. It's such a cool show, man. I mean, it's really neat. The, the, all the people that live here in central Indiana who've had such a profound impact on the city and the area, and, and you're really bringing a lot of interesting things about these people to the public they didn't know before. Well, I really appreciate that. And what I would say is, as a as as an East Side kid who who ate his fair share of paint chips in the '70s, it's remarkable when you work in politics and you work in government who you can meet. And when I've talked to college students, journalism, or gone to political. Uh, conversations with groups or just like like Steve Campbell, who used to work for Bart Peterson and John Zodi, who's chairman of the Indiana Democratic Party. They used to have me to their college classes that they taught. And I would tell all of them, I don't care how you vote. I simply don't care. Get involved in politics. You will not only enjoy it, you will meet the best people. I mean, I I defer to no one when it comes to friends who I grew up with or who are wonderful and, and many Eastsiders who I've known as since a kid want to come on and be on the podcast. And I'm like, there simply isn't that much of a delay <laughs> in if it worked for Ed Tracy, but the people I've met in politics, uh, Republican, libertarian, Democrat are off the charts. They're just so many amazingly good people. And for me to have someone on like Mark miles, who most people didn't know managed Dan Quayle's monumental upset of Birch Bay in 1980. Yeah. That that's one thing. Greg Ballard came on, my former boss, could not have been more gracious, was so fun. And then people like Allison Melangdon who was on a few weeks ago during May, you just look at her and go, you're perfect. Like you have the Midas touch. <laughs> Everything you do turns to absolute gold. And hopefully more conversations like this are coming. I wanted I didn't want to have an angry podcast, you know, with 
with all these accusations. If we do politics, let's do it fun. Let's laugh about it. I mean, you didn't want we are libertarians. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> See all these books, Rob. This is called an education. That's the we're at Rob Robert and There's lots of books. And yeah. I think you know I've been on your show a few yeah. times. You were not a fan of the IPS referenda, which I directed last year, and. And congratulations, I, by the way. I mean, I don't have to pay it, so I don't care. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, congratulations. Well, you know, IPS, when I went there, was this fabulous, and it's and people don't realize the great work that they're doing now. How High School, where I graduated from in 1986, and IPS, they were phenomenal education institutions, and clearly IPS had its rough patch, and I currently work for them still, so I should probably say that, but but the, the referenda was one that was hard fought, but we got 70% on both questions over 75%, excuse me. And so it's gratifying, but when you, when you're out there telling people to pay more, it's just never an easy sell. No. And, and winning 70% of the vote at a time where they just on the commuter referendum too. I mean, good for you. If I ever run for public office again, I'm hiring you. <laughs> I thought Spangle was your first choice for a campaign. Well, manager. I put you two side by side and it just, at the end of the day, Robert, you just came out a little bit ahead. Let me just tell you something. I'll run your campaign for free if abdul is your press secretary (laughs) (laughs) you spangle and abdul it'll be the holy trinity of uh of campaign minds it'll be fabulous let's talk a little bit about your your background how you got into politics Uh, i know it was public acclamation they wanted you brownsburg's favorite son (laughs) i believe that i mean and how did you Get involved. Tell us a little bit about your background before Spangle tears you apart. <laughs> so, yeah, I was a small business owner. I own a company, still do. It's called Audio Sports Online. And we take um, high school and college teams that don't have radio deals and we broadcast their games on the internet. As becoming a business owner, like I had no idea when I started a business, all the work, you know, that goes into owning a oh, business. It's awful. I, I, I would, it sounds terrible, but I would advise people now don't do it unless you're super, super committed. Like, I don't know how people do it that have families that have wives or husbands and kids. And I mean, it was draining not having any of those. And yeah, the, the back end, the, the hidden costs, I have so much respect, you know, like a lot of people. Uh, and I, Chris and I've talked about this before. I seek out entrepreneurs to spend my money because I know for every minute you see them behind the counter, there's probably four minutes that they're, dicking around with the IRS or balancing their checkbook or figuring out insurance and should I invest or not invest and will this menu item work or not work? I'm a huge, huge fan of, of small business. And that's the one thing that starting your business is like, we're all in the migraine club yeah, and that's part of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and Chris knows that too with We Are Libertarians. I mean, He's created this really cool network of people that give him money for no reason at all, other than they like what he does. I mean, it, so there's all sorts of ways to do it, but they get no value whatsoever. <laughs> That's what I'm. Hearing. I was. I didn't mean it like that. I just meant everybody finds a different. Listen, way to- sir, you are kickback Kendall. You're the one taking <laughs> envelopes of cash. But I think about all the hours I see that Chris puts into it. You know, I mean, and and so paying bills and signing checks on the front, you realize, holy crap. There's a lot of work, and this money goes somewhere, man. And I was looking at my hometown, and Brownsburg was the sort of town. Remember the game Sim City, where you where you'd put you'd create towns, and and you would actually build communities. Is that like Pac Man? It, it's it, yeah, yeah. It's, you have to understand, Robert's 107. It's, it's, he's, it's a modern Pac Man. Yeah, he's he's a young 51, but he's only read books about the Middle Ages, so you, no cultural <laughs> awareness whatsoever. <laughs> And you're looking at a town you've lived in for 25 years or whatever it had been, and you say, "Wow, if you put this game into this town into SimCity, they would reject it and say this this town does not compute." Just the way they were designing buildings and roads and the sort of developments that they were bringing in, and you you start learning about taxes, and you're like, "Holy crap!" This town is teetering on the brink. If we don't do something, that it's going to go a bad direction because you're competing with Avon and Zionsville and Carmel and 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 Noblesville. Now, there is a competition that, yeah. that unless you live up there, you're just not really sure how intense it is. I mean, Carmel's kind of the 800 pound gorilla, but these and another place I hear a lot about lately is uh, Whitestown. Yeah, uh, and, and those guys are open for business in Whitestown. They'll give away the store. 
they'll they'll get an abatement, a low interest loan, whatever you need in Whitestown, man. They're open for business. I I grew up in Plainfield, and it's completely different than when I grew up there. You know, there was just the Coachman restaurant and one gas station, and now they've got a mall and every warehouse uh, known to man. And they've done a really nice job in Plainfield of laying everything out in a way that makes sense. They created this little 465 loop. They have a park system. And when I compare Plainfield to Brownsburg, it's not much of a comparison. Like Brownsburg is hard to get through. It's just congested. It's full of people like Rob. It's just not great. <laughs> uh, and we, we've been fortunate here in Indiana. I don't know if you know this, but the Panama Canal was completed in 2014. It was doubled the size of the Panama Canal. And all of that freight came up 65, 69, all through Indianapolis. And so Brownsburg, Whitestown, Plainfield, uh, Greenwood have all of these new warehouses out in their space that we just didn't have 30 years ago when we were growing up. Plainfield has done a great job of attracting a lot of those people in the way that Whitestown has Brownsburg, I don't know what your strategy is there, but well, it's cha- it's changed a lot in the past four years. But you know this, Chris, you've seen it. It takes a de- it takes a generation yeah. to make fundamental change to a community. So the stuff that we did for those four years is starting to pay off through tax rate reductions and through economic development and things of that nature. But yeah, somebody just said, "Man, you'd be really good at this," and you don't realize how complex local government is if you want to do it right. And you're like, oh, sure, that'll be great. We'll help my hometown. It'll be awesome. It'll mm-hmm. be fun. And I'll, you ran for which office? Town council. I loved campaigning. Like, I love meeting people. Like, I like knocking on someone's door and realizing that door could get thrown in my face. The person could come out and talk to me for an hour. I could have a dog jump on me. Like, I like the adventure. I like the thrill. So, run on, Would you run on the Jehovah's Witness ticket? <laughs> <laughs> Robert, he so what I heard is he likes to tell people about Rob. His- I tell people I was Trump before Trump was cool, man. I mean, Trump stole my platform when he was out there uh, campaigning. But so that that's kind of how I got involved was I wanted to make a difference in my community. And I didn't want to see Brownsburg become a tumbleweed town, man. I mean, there were so there were guys, not that there's anything wrong with it, but there were guys in like their 80s. And one guy was almost in his 90s on the town council. And it's like, you have no concept of, at the time, what a world for a guy in his 20s in 2011 is like. Well, you know, that's a that's a great point. We're here at the Leaders and Legends podcast, uh, sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and Aaron Shaler with Grandview Lending. We're here. Our guests are Chris Spangle and Rob Kendall. We're talking about all sorts of things, one of which being how to successfully manage the growth of a smaller entity, a smaller town or city. One of the things, and it wasn't small at the time and it isn't now, but one of the themes of this podcast is to have people on who were quote unquote present at the creation. Yeah. Mark Miles, Louis Mayhern, John Mutz. They were terrific. We have Jim Morris coming up soon. And your point about it takes a generation. That's right. You look at what people did, like let's say, Lugers elected in 67, let's say, to the Pan Am Games. That's 20 years. That's Pan Am Games were in 1987, so 20 years. What happened then? Then from 87 to 2007 was another huge growth spurt. We're, quite frankly, in another one now. Your comment about young people, no one articulated that better than Greg Ballard. He did such a good job. And I could tell you, as someone who worked for him, he was like, we have to create a city where young people want to move to, raise their family, make their career. And what was so helpful to him, which doesn't get enough credit, and we tried to give him credit when he was on, was the fact that he had college-age kids getting ready to start their careers when he was mayor. And he would ask Greg Jr. and Erica, what kind of city do you want to live in? We want to live in an inclusive city. We want to live in a city that has great food and you know entertainment choices. We want to be able to get anywhere we want to. We want to be able to exercise. That was hugely influential into how he managed this city. Is that some of the things you're hearing in Brownsburg when you talk to people? It's like, we can't have people 80 years old dying and have no replenishment. So Chris and I have talked about this when we were libertarians before. One of the things I did when I ran while I was running is I went to the high school for a day and talked to the senior government students. And the teacher was like, you're really interesting. You're young. You went to Brownsburg. This would be interesting to have you come talk to these kids about what you're doing. And I had all these kids, each class, start writing things on a whiteboard. I said, look, if I win, you're going to be the generation that I need to attract back. Because you know this, Robert, we spend – 
twelve to fifteen thousand dollars a year per kid for public education. And over twelve years, that's one hundred and sixty, one hundred seventy thousand dollars you invest into a kid. And then if they leave Brownsburg and don't come back, no offense, that's wasted money. That's wasted money because that kid got an education in our town. We paid for it. And then he leaves and doesn't bring his or her income back. And so I said, the problem with Brownsburg is, hey, yeah, it's got good schools, but you guys leave and don't come back. We need to figure out how to not get you to go downtown. We need to figure out how to not have you move to these to Carmel. We need you to come back to Brownsburg when you're young and have high levels of disposable income. And so these kids would write all these ideas on what they wanted their town to be on a whiteboard. And I was smart enough to realize you can't just say, okay, well, I want a pool. A pool happens. Like you don't just (laughs) drop a pool in. How does a pool happen? Well, a pool happens when you have economic development or a rec center or, or whatever it might be the economic development that that pays for that. Well, how do we create the economic development? So that was sort of the brainchild for me, whether it was completing the Ronald Reagan from Avon to Brownsburg or taking over 267 and expanding that, which is wrapping up. It's how do we create this environment? Okay, there's a decade worth of infrastructure and planning and tax rates and things that have to go into that. Let's start it now. And those kids were incredible in the things that they wrote down. It was awesome. What did they write down? It was all sorts of things. It was like one of the things that came to fruition quickly was a splash pad. Like they really wanted a splash pad. They wanted a skate skate park. They wanted a pool. They wanted a rec center. They wanted what is becoming downtown Brownsburg now with these mixed use developments, which was totally foreign to Brownsburg at the time, you know, with commercial on the bottom, high-end apartments above. It's so popular downtown now. I think there's a second tier of suburban towns like Brownsburg, Plainfield, Greenwood that that are all kind of looking at what Carmel has done, and they go, well, we can't really afford that, uh, and we don't want to drive people out with the tax base. And how do we develop an attractive city that people want to move to? I've, I've lived in green in or around Greenwood for the last 10 years, and I've watched them build things like the splash pad, try to keep taxes as low as possible. And I think that we're both 35. I think speaking for a lot of people our age, you want good schools, low cost of living, nice restaurants, you know, some amenities. So it's, it's livable, it's, it's functional, and a sense of community. And I think Indianapolis has done a good job of that, as you've heard in, over the course of this show. And I think a lot of these suburban towns have seen what Carmel did... And they're taking it down a couple notches, maybe yeah. less roundabouts, yeah. but just two more, um, and <laughs> and kind of trying to find their place. And that's that's an interesting point of view that well, that you're trying to things, find that livable spot. Forgive me. One of the things we learned, I heard it when I was in the mayor's office, but Ryan Vaughn may have talked about it when we had him on the podcast. But Ryan's a singular young leader. Marion County does not have a property tax problem. Marion County has an income tax problem. There are not enough people making enough money living in this city. Yep. Has nothing to do with Mitch Daniels' property tax caps, which were brilliant. Thank God that it happened. And thankfully, there's people like Robert who know how to get around the property tax caps with these referendums. Well, that's the, that's the, <laughs> that's the, that's the tool given to the schools. We didn't write that. We just win elections. We didn't write it. But you're uh, absolutely right. And we've talked about that on the air on WIBC so many times, which is Indianapolis has a big problem where people come here to work and then they flee back out to the suburbs. I'm a problem for Indianapolis because I live in Brownsburg. I love working. I eat downtown. I contribute. But I don't stay down downtown, so that income tax, like you talked about, goes to Brownsburg. And if you had 20, 25, 33% of the people who live in the Donut County still in Marion County, that would be pretty close to transformative in terms of what the city budget would look like and how you could spend it. Are you, and we don't necessarily want to fuss about particular issues here, but commuter tax, I'm a big fan of it. Are you against it since you... I don't. I think Hogshead did a couple of things wrong. One, he blindsided all those mayors, which you know. I mean, he didn't tell them in advance. You got. You got to. You got to start planning that out. That's a year in advance, right? I want to do this. You got to start bringing those people in. And you know, the mayor of Noblesville comes out. The mayor of Carmel comes out and goes, "We have no idea about this." Well, they're already done. Like you're, we're done. Uh, let me let me defend let me defend uh, Mayor Hogshead for just one point of that. As soon as you freaking tell people, it right. leaks. So you can either Scott Fadness isn't going to immediately call Jim Merritt. Well, I mean, yeah, true. But leaving Merritt out of it, 
I cannot tell you how many times as a PR pro, or at least a hopefully a P- PR pro, I had a nice little news conference planned for this big announcement, and I get a call from a reporter 45 minutes before. It says, when the mayor announces X, and you're like, you've got to be kidding me. Once you tell one person, so you can either choose to own your own message, which I think is what the Hogsett folks tried to do, or you can select, tell people so that you won't get blindsided per se, but know that the media is now going to control the narrative of your announcement. It's a tough decision. We have a really, we, we think we're this low tax state, but we're not. We're like 35th in the nation in terms of overall taxation. We have tax, our, the way our taxes are set up don't make sense. And Chris and I've talked about this before. I'm against property taxes, period, because you never own your home. The government always has some sort of, stranglehold on you. And for most people, their home is their primary investment. That's the number one investment they'll make in their lives. And and like like you said, maybe there is some merit to the idea of, hey, maybe the income tax needs to be distributed where you where you work versus where you live. Maybe that needs to be changed. But the idea that we're just going to come out because the income tax, if you're moving to a community that's growth, which means, hey, Plainfield needs another police officer if 10,000 more people move out here. Well, if Hogsett wants that pool of that money, then Plainfield can't hire that police officer. Plainfield's dealing with the majority of that that growth because that's where those people live. Right. How about this point? And then I'll let, I'll let Chris jump in for a while. How about the just the General Assembly Instead of jihadding against Indianapolis all the time, <laughs> when they go back to their communities, which is exactly what they do. No, for sure. How about they just go, look, it's our city. It's our capital. It is, it is absolutely the economic driver of the state. Marion County, last I heard, is a donor county, which means it throws off more taxes to the state mm-hmm. than it gets from the state. Why doesn't the General Assembly just say, look, we're going to... We, the state, are going to control the X maintenance of roads or the Y maintenance of bridges for our capital every single year. And we're going to dedicate $100 million just to choose a number. And that's the, the first $100 million is the state responsibility because it's our capital. And if Indianapolis goes down the drain, the rest of the state is going to follow it very quickly. That would be more than a commuter tax. That would be my solution is... All these folks who don't live in Indianapolis and don't represent Marion County, who go back to their communities and, and, and affirmatively and proudly campaign, I'm going to the state house and we're not going to let Indianapolis dictate what we're doing. We're not going to do everything for the big city. Then they come here. Then they complain about the state of the infrastructure. Well, guess what? Why doesn't the state? Now, that would be my solution. What do you think? And then, Chris, you can have the floor for a while. Well, Chris and I have talked about this a lot over the years, too, and you found this in, as long as you've been around, especially in the mayor's office, I'm sure people are so a apathetic and b uninspired to be informed that the only time they actually care is when it's something that impacts them. Right. And by the time it impacts you, well, that's too late because there's a reason it's in, it's impacting you. You know, government is hard, man. I mean, the average person, if you try to explain a TIF district to them you've got 30 seconds and their eyes start glazing over. If you're trying to explain economic development and how those dollars are riverboat dollars, I mean, there's all these funds and it's hard, it's complex, and it's not even people's fault because they're trying to raise their kids. They're going to work. Like, we're nerds. Yeah, but I, I, I don't buy that, really. I think that there does have to be some civic responsibility and people don't seek that information out. And I think... I'm a, a fairly well-informed person, and like listening to this show, I don't, I've never heard of half of the people that are kind of really making a lot of these decisions. It's it's hard to find some of that information. I lay some of that at the media, and that's because people won't click on information that actually impacts them, and so people make choices about the information that they want. And having worked in media basically most of my career for the last 15 years, people want their ears tickled. They don't want actual information. They want, they want WWE. You're, you're right. And this is a conversation I have with my bosses at WIBC all the time, because again, I'm a policy wonk, right? You know, things that are interesting to me may not necessarily be interesting to people in a five minute segment, right? So things I want to talk about, if it's not interesting to the masses, because I need every 
especially people who have meters, I need every meter to be on that station right. as long as possible because that's how I'm judged. You have to entertain people before you educate and you try to get as much education in as you can. But the premium is put on entertainment, especially in the media, which we need to inform people. Yeah. Well, it's called Strawberry Fest for a reason and not Brussels Sprouts Fest. <laughs> did you get some strawberries today? By I the did way? not because it was it was really starting to rain when I when I left. But I mean, people want to be fed. They want their sugar. Yeah. And their sugar could be sports. Their sugar could be the Kardashians. Their sugar could be Strawberry Fest. And it's harder to dig into a lot of these issues. I am not necessarily disagreeing with Chris or actually kind of disagreeing with you as someone who's got two teenagers and his own business. It's hard to keep up on everything. My only issue is it's unfair how Indianapolis gets treated by the state house. I've always felt that way. People can blame Hogsett. I don't blame Hogsett because they're not treating him any worse or any better than they treated Ballard. And Ballard was a member of their own party. I mean, they lit up Peterson when he went over there with his, you know, indie works or whatever. And I'm sure Goldsmith and, and Hudnut and everyone can tell their own stories. I just don't believe that the state house, the general assembly is giving Indianapolis the attention it deserves, not just because it's the capital, but because Without Indianapolis, then the rest of the state, quite frankly, is in the 1860s. There, there is some validity to the things that like a Tom Saunders out in Richmond would say. I, I've had conversations with him about almost this very topic. He's like, listen, I represent my constituents, and my constituents are unhappy with their roads. And the road, and the road taxes don't stay here. Uh, and it seems to me that there is... There just needs to be a more comprehensive look. I, I'm talk about president at the creation. I was Abdul's producer in 2007 and 2008. And so, you know, I was there at the beginning of Mitch Daniels. I was working for a talk radio station. I was at his first uh, inaugural address. And it was one of the most masterful takedowns of government I've ever seen in my life. My little libertarian heart was beating and when I became executive director of the Libertarian Party of Indiana, we never, ever issued a rebuttal to M Mitch Daniels' secretary, uh, his, uh, state of the state, is what you called it, because we couldn't complain about anything. He was right. I mean, there's a lot about Indiana state government that needs to be reformed. And I think when you say Indianapolis doesn't get the attention that they deserve, I think almost every lawmaker in the state would say the same thing about their hometown. There seems to be a brokenness with the way that we have structured the state government and how it interacts with local entities that just isn't working anymore, and it's not high high uh, pay. It's not fast enough, I guess is the word I'm looking for. I think everybody in the state feels that way. I I don't disagree with you at all about Indianapolis needs to get its due, but when we start, I've I've seen the coat taxes passed when I worked for Abdul. Uh, this property tax caps passed. The, there's just always another little fix. We're kind of like band-aiding things because we can't have that larger debate about how we ought to restructure Indiana government. So to me, a commuter tax, it's like, I get the argument for it, but how much longer, how many more little patches here and there and beverage and food taxes are well, we going to add? And that becomes the question, right? Because we pay for the stadium in Brownsburg. Right. Now, my beef is not, I have a beef with that, but my beef is that they, they sold it to these communities by saying, well, you can take a penny, too, and you'll just kind of blame it on us. Right. Because everybody thought, well, the don't, there's a 2% tax in Hendricks County on most communities in Hendricks County on food and beverage, and most people think it goes to the stadium. No, the thieves in local government mm. took one for themselves and took one for the stadium, and they said, well, we didn't want to do that, but the, the, those bastards in Indianapolis made us, made us do it. So until people become informed, and that's why what you do is so important and why what Chris does is so important, it's hard for me to get to people in a nine-minute segment. You know, when I do my off-the-rails segment on WIBC, I'm playing a character. I'm talking about things that are important. I'm not actually the lunatic I often play on the radio. But it's that long-form show like this or what you do with We Are Libertarians. But how do you get people to invest in that? I mean, my show Let's is, talk about I was just yeah, going to yeah, say, Chris, no, 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 because I want to ask you. It's been mentioned a few times, uh, the We Are Libertarians podcast that I think you started. Talk a little bit about that, why you started it, and what you discussed, because the folks listening to the leader and legends may just not be familiar. 
Yeah, so I started We Are Libertarians March 8, 2012, and I was the executive director of the State Libertarian Party at that point. And I'd had this radio background, and I left working with Abdul at WXNT to go into politics because I I have always wanted to go into talk radio, and I just realized at that point that I had (laughs) no—I go back and listen to those episodes, and I was so dumb and so ill-informed. I'm still that way, but a lot better than I was 10, 15 years ago, and I just felt that there needed to be— more discussion from a libertarian point of view out in the world. It it initially started as a way to reach out to college students because podcasting was kind of a realm of young people at that point. And what it's turned into is a long-form discussion. It's really, if you want to know about Brexit, we did a two-hour show on Brexit. You listen for two hours, you will know every gritty detail, starting with an overview, ending with the full details of Brexit. We just, you know, we've done wildfires. We've done... Uh, anything that's in the news, we do a full breakdown. And so it's an entertaining look at some of these bigger concepts. And the number one thing that I hear most of the time is, it's too long. I can't get through it. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> and I get that. I understand that because working for, I work for Bob and Tom and working in commercial radio, I understand that people listen for 15 minutes and then their attention span is done. And so you have to constantly be entertaining in the way that rob purports to be and uh it's hard heard that it's harder to get an audience when you're doing long form probe i mean what you do at leaders and legends i think you're telling a story over the course of an hour and people really gravitate to story it's the way that the human brain latches onto things and it is harder to do uh talk about government policy because people do get bored because it's not seen as relevant to them you know? Well, the, the the point of leaders and legends really is is so that people will hire my company, Veteran Strategies, <laughs> to do public relations. I mean, we're Republicans here, at least on this microphone, so <laughs> we don't bury the lead. And he owns uh, it. And the second second thing is is a chance for me. To, I've always wanted to, as someone told me one time, you're an inquisitive little punk, <laughs> and uh, I enjoy asking questions of people who've accomplished things. Uh, to get their motivation, why they chose this. Um, I love books, history books written by people who were inside the room. Yeah. There's a great book called Reagan at Reykjavik. It's by Ken Edelman, and it was the Reykjavik Summit, which I think was in 86 between Reagan and Gorbachev, where Gorbachev basically just wanted to eliminate all nuclear weapons in exchange for Reagan giving up what the Strategic Defense Initiative. Reagan wouldn't do it, and the summit broke up to great fanfare. But this guy who wrote this book was in the was in the room when Reagan would come out. I mean, those those things are fabulous. And so you you talk to Jim Morris about tell me about the decision to build Market Square Arena downtown and how that changed the city. You talk to Mark Moore, or Mark Miles, excuse me, about running the ATP and dealing with Connors and McEnroe and Sampras and Agassi, Allison Melangdon running the Super Bowl. The list goes on and on, right? And so those are the things that I find fascinating. Uh, political talk shows, political podcasts aren't my thing because I can get that anywhere. Yeah. I just want to listen to someone say, well, when we decided to do X... That's the stuff that's that's fascinating. And I think that everybody in Indianapolis could benefit or does benefit from hearing these stories because it's certainly clear that Indianapolis could have taken a completely different path since 1967 and ended up as insert urban blight capital here. And it didn't. And it's fun to talk to folks about why. What subjects on your show, Rob, what subjects do you like to talk about the most? And what kind of guests do you like to have? Like pe- it's, it's a people. Like people fascinate me. Not always so much what they did. Like you're talking about being at the, at the epicenter of when something happened. But who they are. Because I think who you are shapes whatever it is that you do. So like when I interviewed Trump... I didn't want to talk to Trump about lying Ted Cruz or, you know, public policy because that's so boring. I talked to him about Ryan White because he was involved somewhat in the whole Ryan White thing. I talked to him about pro wrestling because he loved pro wrestling and hosted a couple WrestleManias. 
Pete, and when did you talk to him? When did you interview him? I delivered Indiana for, for Donald <laughs> Trump in 2016. I, I interviewed him the day before the Indiana primary. I have, I have a Rob story when you're done. I, <laughs> <laughs> but he was a fascinating guy. And I always tell people the thing about the Trump interview, they have you on a timer when you're in there. It was five people. It was like me, Daily Mail, Hannity was there for Fox News. And they're having a very strict timer because he's got to do go do his events. And they tell you, you've got 15 minutes from the moment he sits down to start. And if you're not done, we will literally carry you out of the room. So I get done right at the 15 minutes. I'm packing everything up. And he keeps talking. And the chick that's the handler is like trying to tell me I got to go. And I'm looking at her like, this guy wants to keep talking. I'm not leaving. This guy's, you know, he's going to be the Republican nominee for president. Well, he wanted to keep talking because your interview was, you're so great. I love you. (laughs) You can listen to it in the We Are Libertarians feed. It's quite... (laughs) <laughs> the uh, the yeah, mouth. Do you pit. have to sign a prenup before you <laughs> right. interviewed it, Trump? He, but he kept going, and I told him when we got done. I'm telling you, it was like Rachel Maddow interviewing Barack Obama. It was unbelievable. <laughs> but hey, uh, we all have our look. I'm, as I say, there's a Greg Ballard cult of which there is. There are two members: Greg Ballard and me. <laughs> he w- but he was so nice, and he kept talking, and he was talking about like stuff that had nothing to do with politics afterwards. Like, this guy doesn't know me from anybody. Mm -hmm. Now, again, he was very thrilled that some guy wasn't grilling him or trying to play gotcha. But we talked for about 15 minutes after we were done. And and he he told me something that will always stay with me because he asked me what do you want to do? And I told him, well, you know, I'd been in elected office. I had been in talk radio before that. He said, what are you going to do now? I said, I don't know. He said, look, he said, follow your dream, whatever that is. You know, he said, I, you know, I've made a billion dollars. I've lost a billion dollars. I've made a billion dollars back. He said, follow your dream. And that's one of the reasons I tried so hard to get back into talk radio at WIBC was that very conversation because I was kind of doing radio as a part time thing. And you suddenly realize, yeah, you do, but have to follow your dream. But the thing I told Trump, as I said, if people saw this side of you, almost no one ever sees this side of you they would have a totally different opinion about you. That's the dude that sits in a room with a world leader and wows them over. Twitter Trump is not the real Donald Trump. He's playing a character. Donald Trump is the master at playing a character. He's an architect of of a new public discourse that really is a throwback to, I mean, we we had a conversation about the Middle Ages and, and how it really... The way that he structures things, he plays he plays humans like a Stradivarius. I mean, he really understands how to deliver a message simply, directly, and in a way that inflames his opposition so that it promotes him. And it's why he beat 16 Republicans, Hillary Clinton, and probably Nancy Pelosi in the future. The, the thing that stood out to me when I was in there, because I was the first guy in there, so I'm waiting for him. It's literally like Apprentice. You hear the elevator ding. He comes down off the elevator at the JW Marriott. He's got the string of people behind him. Two things stood out. He walks up to me. I can hear him. I'm in the room by myself. He walks up to me, and the guy's walking behind him. He goes, okay, who do we have first? And they said, Rob Kendall, WYRZ Radio, Indianapolis. He walks up to me. He goes, hey, very nice to meet you. All right, let's do it. They didn't ask me what – nobody asked me what I wanted to talk to him about. Nobody asked him what I was going to ask him. Like, his rolling. The guy is fearless. Like, I guarantee if you had gotten an interview with Ted Cruz during the same time, it was what do you want to talk to him about? Right. What questions are you going to ask? Submit your questions in advance. To Trump's detriment, that's why he gets trapped into things because he doesn't do that sort of prep work. That's why George Stephanopoulos can catch him on, well, hey, if Russia wanted to help you again, would would you right. would you take their help? And he and he, he answers the question. He doesn't fundamentally understand politics, no. which is why he's he's had such a problem. He, he, but he that just so so stood out to me that here's a guy who's going to be the Republican nominee for president. He's sitting down in front of a live microphone with a guy that he doesn't know and he's rolling and he does not care and he will answer whatever you put in front of him. He will yeah. answer have you had any contact with him or his people since his election? I talked to Hope, Hope Hicks was incredibly nice. And I've talked to her a couple times since then. She's not at the White House anymore. But it gave me a a perspective that few people ever, ever get to see. The other thing that they told me when I was sitting there waiting for him, I said, look, I don't know what the protocol here is. I said, you guys obviously know I'm a fan. You know, I'm not a news. I'm not a news reporter here. I'm a commentator no. and a fan. I said, can I ask him for a picture afterwards? And the, and the woman goes, you can do whatever you want. 90% of the time he will tell people no, but if he likes you, he will take a picture with you. 
And she said, if you want to ask, that's on you. So when I got done, I was kind of scared. And I said, hey, I hate to ask, but I said, can I get a picture with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, took the picture and he was like, it's just. So not to further sully your journalistic credibility. <laughs> if you're looking to me to get an unbiased opinion, you've come to the wrong place. I well, get. I would just say that we, we take a picture with our guests after every <laughs> Leaders and Legends. So don't be nervous. We'll so, go ahead and take it. So I get media credentials for We Are Libertarians for the very first time to Trump's a uh, few months after this interview. He's speaking at the, at the uh, state fairgrounds. And we go. Bobby Knight. Uh no, I don't think Bobby was at that one. This is the okay. first one he did at the fairgrounds. Okay. Yeah. okay. And uh <laughs> I walk into the pit, I'm getting set up, you know, having worked with a lot of the people that were there, like Brian Howie's next to me, you know, a lot of a lot of very established media elite. I've worked, you know, I know the rules of the pit, right? And so I'm sitting there trying to look legitimate. What is this roadhouse? Cuz cuz I'm I'm I know that I'm with a podcast, and if anybody asks who I'm with, they're going to suss me out immediately. In walks Rob Kendall with his Make America Great Again hat, strolling in, <laughs> waving at everybody, sits down next to me. On my left is Rob in a Make America Great Again hat, and on my right is a horrified Brian Howie, who cannot believe that these clowns are sitting anywhere near him. And when Trump does the inevitable, and they're the enemy of the people, look at them, they're the most shameful people ever, everybody turns around... Big smiles on their face already because it's like cathartic. They love to boo at them. It's never been what Jim Acosta makes it. They all turn around. They all start booing. They're like, yeah. And then all of a sudden you see like a wave from the front back to Trump. (laughs) Laughter and confusion at a person in the pit wearing a red hat. It was maybe it's one of the most favorite moments I've ever had of of being in the uh, around the press. I had lunch with with a couple of reporters whose names I won't mention. Because they're credible, <laughs> serious. Because they're not friends with Rob Kendall. That's all they're <laughs> well, that's a long yeah. line. Uh, yeah. And I said that this was right around the primary of sixteen, and they couldn't seem to grasp necessarily the. Uh, and I don't. I don't mean that like they they couldn't understand it as much as they couldn't just comprehend it. The Republican. I don't know. I guess the word's just hatred. The, the the average Republican primary voter yeah. feeling towards the national news media is Serb Croat, Lakers Celtics, Hoosiers Boilers. Yeah. I mean, there's significant vitriolic emotional anger at these reporters. I even said, I think, look, I wouldn't advise it, but Trump could take his shoe off and throw it at Jim Acosta or George Stephanopoulos in the Republican primary. I could be like, it's a doubt damn time after all the times they treated us so badly. Newt New Gingrich in 2016 railed against the press or 2012 and immediately mm-hmm. popped up. It was 2012, yeah. popped up Absolutely. in the polls the next night at one of those debates when he went against the media. So in your guys' mind, uh, we're here with Rob Kendall and we're here with Chris Spangle and the podcast is Leaders and Legends. Both of you speak to this. Is is the Republican slash conservative angst, uber angst towards the national news media justified? Absolutely. I think if you look at the recent New York Times article about YouTube, for instance, and the subtle messaging of putting Ben Shapiro next to Stefan Molyneux and Milo Yiannopoulos and, and trying to flatten mainstream conservatives with Alex Jones, for instance, it is... It's just clear that the media's goal has been revenge for Hillary Clinton losing. And the easy scapegoat are big tech. And where can people like Rob and I gain an audience that isn't controllable, that isn't mainstream? You know, we we basically speak a different language and speak to different people than a lot of your guests speak to. It's been fascinating for me to come and listen at every interview as I produce the show to people that I've railed against or, or things like the sports strategy that I've railed against forever and hear their justification for it. I don't totally agree, and I do think that it has worked, but it, it has been a more humane perspective, I mean, a humanizing perspective than you might see in the media or that I really have ever understood. And so I think people that that listen to this show or that have been on the show or that you work with have a much different experience than Rob and I have when we go out and talk to people. I mean, 
I'll never forget talking to one reporter about how I, I was at the founding of the Indiana Tea Party. I was working for the Libertarian Party of Indiana, and uh, I'm in the room at Buca de Beppo's with every person that went on to start a major Indiana Tea Party group. Barack Obama's race was never mentioned once. I went. It's never been mentioned in any private conversation I've ever had about his presidency ever. And right, ever. and and if you and I went to tons of tea parties because I was trying to get these libertarian leaning Republicans to take a look at some of our candidates. His race was never mentioned once, but the bigotry of the tea party, the racism of the tea party is constantly there. And so now, right now there's this narrative that if you watch Ben Shapiro on YouTube, you hear Kara Swisher who of recode media interviewing Susan, Susan, what who is the CEO of YouTube. And she's like, I caught my son watching Ben Shapiro videos. How can I keep him from <laughs> slipping into white nationalism? And it's so absurd. And well, so he's Jewish. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and the, then the narrative really is that if you, if you engage in listening to mainstream conservatives or libertarians like Rob and I, you're going to end up at a very dark place. The algorithm's going to take you down a rabbit hole. But the point that seems lost on a lot of these people is that YouTube, Facebook, podcast, these are the only place where they hear our opinion. They're not on Channel 6. They're not on Fox. Well, they're on Fox News. They're not on CNN. They're not in the Washington Post. I think the Atlantic is one of the few places that leans left that has tried to bring in other voices. And when they brought on Kevin Williamson, it was from National Review, it was like you, you couldn't believe it. And so absolutely awful. It was absolutely awful because he's right. a brilliant thinker and they accused him of wanting to put to death women who had abortions. Yeah. But they didn't do their research because if they had, they would have realized he's against the death penalty. Right. So so and so uh, the one, one final point, I would say that it's not all intentional. I think that when the New York Times just hires a bunch of people who went to the Columbia Journalism School, <laughs> there's groupthink that goes on. I think there is a massive groupthink on the part of most media of most journalists that a want to protect their position and make sure that people like Rob and I don't steal their audience uh, and their ad revenue. And I think and be able to be a. Uh, invited to the right parties yeah yeah no there's right tremendous social pressure local media members did not want to be sitting next to rob and i at that event yep and 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 part of it is because look i was elected as a republican i've always voted in republican primaries but in general elections i vote for libertarians all the time but so i'm not a tradition i don't fit in the traditional box of i want to go to the dinners and hang out with the people but i would always watch like when bush was president and I, I would watch the way the media would just tear him apart and say things that were grossly unfair. Bush did a lot of that stuff to himself. He had a lot of bad policies. Yeah, but the idea that he was a blithering idiot and he went to Harvard and Yale, yeah. Yeah. they never would yeah. have done that to someone no. else. people don't like to be programmed. And people feel manipulated and gaslighted by the media if you're of a conservative, Christian, libertarian yep. bent in this country. Yeah, it's like, look, we can debate the Iraq War. I was against it. I think Bush did a lot of things that were bad. But the way this guy is treated... And that's why Trump is so popular and so beloved with people like me is Trump doesn't take their crap. Bush took yeah. it, man. Mitt Romney took it. Mitt Romney let Candy Crowley steal a presidency from him. There, and and right. there's, there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of truth to that, that, that George W. Bush was compared unfavorably to his father. The, what rehabilitated George W. Bush was the election of Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. And, and go ahead. You know, well, I, what I was going to say was part of the reason I'm so hated by so many people in the mainstream, certainly of the R- Republican Party in central Indiana and many members of the press is I'm a fringe guy who works for a major media outlet. Mm-hmm. Like I'm in the legit media, but I get to be me. I say the things, you know, I, 20 years ago in WIBC, you're never hearing you would never hear somebody go after the Republican senator. Like, they would never go after Richard Luger the way I go after Todd Young or give a nickname that is caught on around central Indiana calling the governor high-tax Holcomb. But I'm in that, I'm in a le- very legitimate media field being able to have these somewhat friend, what are deemed fringe views, and people like it. So and, that's part of why I'm so hated. And the more effective you are, the more they want to push you out of the system. And so there is, a, when people have a position of power, they want to protect that position of power. 
And I think a lot of what's going on is trying to deleverage. Like Ben Shapiro is a great example. As you watch him and Steven Crowder kind of go through that ringer, traditional conservatives in the vein of Rob Kendall. What what you will see over the next year about Ben Shapiro, who is completely inoffensive, is is he will he it. It's moving the Overton window so that he's not allowable opinion. You have to make him look bad because we don't want to have to compete with somebody on YouTube or podcasts, and they don't want to have to give up that position. But the fact is, is you're existing in a reality that doesn't really exist for most Americans, and then mainstream journalists who work for the Washington Post never want to actually go out and understand what that experience is. They demonize it. And so that's how you end up with the Donald Trump in a second term. It's because people, you, you can easily build a base of people who believe the same way and punish the people that have perceived power. When Shapiro tells stories about how he gets, it's not so much anymore because he's more well-known, but when he first started his commentary as a, as a, Jewish guy who graduated from Ivy League school, he'd get invited to speak at these events yeah. because they all thought he was a Democrat. Then he went there and he started speaking. They were like, wait a second. <laughs> this isn't what we thought we were getting, which in a, some ways tells you a lot. Let's- and, and, and can I add a caveat? Because I'm not against journalism. One of the reasons that I love doing this show is because it gives information that I think needs to be heard from people that I have spent a lot of my career saying these people are wrong, but I've enjoyed hearing from them. I think... I think Indianapolis, the fact that the the Star, for instance, has lost more than half of its journalists in the last decade is terrible. I think there needs to be an athletic for local news type system. There needs to be something that arises because uh, I, people want to understand the world. They want to understand how things work. Investigative journalism is incredibly important, and there needs to be a process of vetting information. I, I, I just think that the corporate structure of a lot of news organizations currently doesn't work. But I'm not against the profession. I'm just against the set of incentives, like giant boards that say how many articles got clicked that day. I think those incentive structures are wrong and need to be reformed. And that's part of the reason that I do We Are Libertarians is to try and show that you can build a model that's different than the old model. I work in the old model, and then my part-time job is the new model. And so I think it does work, and it is an important profession, but I think that a lot of people are just getting it wrong. When it comes to Governor Holcomb... (laughs) Oh, here we go. (laughs) And we have a few minutes, and then we're not going to do the usual five questions because that would probably take too long, but I'm going to do some rapid fire here. And both of you can answer if I can think of them on the fly, which I'm trying to do. I'm a gigantic fan of Eric Holcomb personally. He's one of the most honest, engaging, genuine, real people I've ever met in politics. The only person who's really who I was close to. I think Dan Coates is a phenomenally fabulous man. Rob's Um, sweating. Is. uh, Hold on, I got this six foot seven guy in the kitchen is going to come out. Is uh, it's like to catch a predator, Chris? Is, is, is Greg you say one nice thing about Todd Young? Rob's leaving. <laughs> is Greg Ballard is the closest I can come in terms of personal? Um, I, I didn't have a problem with the gasoline tax because I think it's basically when it comes to gasoline price fluctuation. I think Rob, it's are smart. You okay? Oh yeah, I'm great. <laughs> All right, okay. And so. Um, I don't think there's a chance in hell he gets defeated in 2020. And depending on who the D's put up, he could have a Mitch Daniels-esque re-election effort. The reason for me saying all these things is simply because, does do you feel pressure when you are basically against a very popular and much uh, complimented elected official or politician, do you feel like, okay, then I need to ratchet up the rhetoric even more because people really aren't listening to me or getting my point? Or is there a part of you that goes, okay, well, the dude's pulling at 60 some percent or whatever. Maybe I'm wrong. No, no, I, I don't. I feel like I'm very fair in, in the things that I talk about. So this, the gas tax, look, to just arbitrarily say, here's what we're going to put out there. And then it's going to go up every year. Well, that's not putting any accountability on NDOT. Instead of just giving them a billion dollars and saying it's going to go up every year, why don't you pull $300 million? I mean, this is what I would do as a business owner. If somebody came for a massive amount of money to me, I'd say, no, I'm going to give you part of it. And then you come back to me next year and you show me what my investment was. 
And if it works, then I'll consider giving you more money. But just to arbitrarily say, well, we're going to we're just going to change it and then it's going to go up every single year. Indot is the mob, man. Those I've dealt with those guys for years in local government. They're that's the small M mob, <laughs> lowercase M. That's they're the last guys I would give a blank check to. But isn't the investment relative to the need, not the organization? I mean, if if Hoosiers are screaming like we'll pay more, but we expect more. Isn't that a legitimate? But we're not trade-off? getting it. We're, we, we've put more than two billion dollars into this fund, and the roads still suck. I mean, the roads are so bad that I just bought a new car, and I literally bought a retire a tire replacement plan for seven years. Well, I'm paying an extra nine hundred dollars because I know the Indot is not capable of doing this. And I think part of my deal with Holcomb is his answer to everything is just throw money at it. School safety is a great example. The Snowblesville shooting happens. That's tragic, but that's an isolated thing. Oh, my God, we must do something. We're going to give everybody these metal detectors based on student population. I talked to four different superintendents and every one of them to a person told me we don't want these. They won't take they won't make a bit of difference. We don't know how to use them. We're not capable of staffing the people to use them. This is a waste of money. So I said, well, why do you take them? They said, because if we don't take them and something happens, then we're on the hook because we didn't take the metal detectors. That was a waste of money. But Holcomb wants to look at people and say, well, I did something. It was a waste of millions of dollars. The DCS thing is another example. Well, I want to throw $300 million at DCS. Eric Holcomb can't tell you where that money's going, but he wants to say, I threw money at it. You know this, Robert. You could throw $3 billion at DCS, and you're not going to fix the problem because it's the management of the system. Don't, don't, when we're paying for kids to go to prom, which is what DCS is doing amongst a host of other expenses that are not a part of a person's daily life, I don't want to hear that there's no money. We are not efficiently managing the money. And the, the first response to everything is throw money at it. Well, we're broke. Okay, it's got to be a tax increase. That's my problem with Eric Holcomb. But to go back to something that you said earlier about Brownsburg, and, and I am defending Eric because he is a friend. And I'm not nearly as, as deep in public policy as, as you are. And I would concede that point actually as a compliment to you. Thank you. Yeah, because I thought you were stupid. I was, <laughs> I was really impressed right then. I was really... Is, is you said earlier that these cities aren't changed. It takes a generation. Well, it takes a generation to address infrastructure needs that have been ignored for a generation. Now, you had the brilliant, what I thought, uh, Mitch Daniels toll road deal, which which anyone who goes from here to Evansville is like, oh my God, thank you for this. And and I thought it was a brilliant piece. I don't know what you guys thought as libertarians, but I thought it was absolutely brilliant. However, it takes longer to address. So you're not going, the eight years, hopefully, that Eric Holcomb is governor, you're not going to see this 90% transformation in, in our the condition of our roads. But because of, of the quote-unquote courage that it took to advocate for this tax increase over a series of governorships, you could see this. And you could see 2040, 2045, 2050, where like, okay, it's demonstrably, it's demonstrably better because the money has been invested wisely. And I guess that's where we differ. I don't see stealing money from other people as courageous. So when I and I realize that Brownsburg is a microcosm. Of, why, why is it stealing? Because it's taking by force. He didn't cut from other funds. He just said we're raising taxes and forcing you to pay more. But isn't that what the ballot box is about? So if people okay, but, don't want But him he didn't to campaign be- on that, Robert. He didn't say one word about raising taxes. He's raised four billion dollars of taxes and he's going for another billion with this payroll tax in four years. Eric Holcomb has raised taxes more than John Gregg would have. I mean, we've got to get our heads around that, that from a tax perspective, Eric Holcomb has raised taxes more than John Gregg has. I don't see taking by force from people as courageous. Again, I realize Brownsburg's a microcosm, but when I ran, I told people we will invest $50 million of infrastructure in four years, which in a town Brownsburg size is unheard of. And I said, I'll cut your taxes 20%. Four years later, we did $50 million of infrastructure, did two major roads, and I cut the taxes 18.5%. I came up a little short on the tax increase. You can cut taxes and do infrastructure. It's not an either or equation. And I find Holcomb, God bless him for his public service. God bless him for serving in the Navy, but he's never signed paychecks from the front. He's an uninquisitive guy. And I believe many of the lobbyists and the power brokers of this state consider Eric Holcomb a dream. That's why he has the fundraising he does. They will not let him die. They will not let him go. So let me ask this, and then we're going to go on to this rapid fire because we're up against our hour pretty quickly. 
given all that, given what people say about Trump, they should both be easy pickings when they're on the ballot together in 2020. So if you had to bet your friendship with Chris Spangle, <laughs> which I know is something valuable, please. Yeah. He's the ham sandwich to your hobo. You can't, you don't want to get rid of him. Can't quite loosen the grip. Wait, who's the ham? Well, I'm clearly the ham sandwich. Look at my skin color. <laughs> Look at that hair. Right. Are they both going to win? Uh, Yes, that's no secret. The liber- many in the Libertarian Party have talked to me about running for governor, and one of the things that I've looked at is, could you actually win? Just costing another guy the election—that's not what running for public office should be about. And yeah, it'd be a hell of a lot of fun for the next year because I'm really good at earned media to go around the state and trash the hell out of this guy. But going up against a guy that starts with a six million dollar fundraising advantage. That's going to be really hard to beat. He could literally run $3 million of negative ads against a libertarian, which has never been done before. And you can't respond to it. Yeah, he's running against a bunch of inept Democrats who is a they're a party in shambles in this state. He's not going to win because he's great. He's not going to win because he's good. He's going to win because he's non-offensive. He's not Mike Pence. People are apathetic and they're just going to go on about their lives and and. To Brian Bosma and David Long's credit, they did a tremendous job of painting Democrats as the devil in this state that Republicans under no circumstances not only could ever vote for, but they can't vote for a libertarian because that's giving your vote to the Democrat. Right. So, yeah, I think I think Holcomb will win. It depends on who the Democrat nominee is. If it's Biden, I think Trump's in big trouble. Anybody else, I think Trump will win. Chris, we have to make this quick. I agree with both of those points. In a scale of one to ten, one being left of Khrushchev, 10 being Evan by and days gone by, how would you position the Democrats for statewide elections in the next four or five cycles if you were in charge of their party? I, would, I wouldn't look at it as a left or right thing. I would look at it as somebody who can speak to the people about real things. They have to be able to articulate why the policies of Eric Holcomb have been bad for them. Look, if you're a single mother, which is probably right in the wheelhouse of a Democrat voter, need to explain to them why they, how much the gas tax cost you, how many diapers that would buy, how many meals that would buy, how many trips to Kohl's that would buy. You have to, it's not a left or right issue. It's a fundamental, you have to, and it's, it's going to probably put some Democrats in a bad position to have to talk about tax increases because they love the tax increases, right? But you have to- Rapid fire, Rob. You have to articulate to people- it's not a left or right. It's somebody who can articulate the message. I think that the national, everybody just, there's no local character anymore. Everything is homogenized, and politics is no different. And I think from a population perspective, the Democrats will not be a significant force on the statewide uh, stage because the, the party locally is going to move further and further left. And that's going to alienate people in the in the counties. And I think you saw that with John Gregg. Progressives in Indianapolis are not going to vote for a John Gregg who appeals to red counties. Will Donald Trump be impeached? Yes or no? He will vote. They will vote to impeach him. He will not be convicted in the Senate. They've made too many promises. They're going to have to try and impeach him. And I think that he will not be impeached because too many suburban Democrats that just got elected will will fall off. Who will be the next two United States senators elected from Indiana? Robert Vane. <laughs> with, with only if only if my internet records can be permanently erased, <laughs> will I have a chance in heck of ever being nominated or elected. But Young comes up in twenty two, and uh, Braun comes up in twenty four. They run. Do they both win? Yeah, well, they're, they're both. Todd Young will be in that office until he's carried out in a box because he needs to be in politics. Agreed. That, it, that's why he's doing this ridiculous tobacco stuff. He needs to be liked. He needs to be in politics. He's wanted to be there since he was old enough to tie his shoes. He'll be there until he's voted out or he's taken out in a box. Uh, I think Braun I think Braun will serve another term. And, and so what is that? That's 12 years. I th- so I probably hold the record of most debates attended as a flack behind the scenes. <laughs> Because of my position with the Libertarian Party, I've been to every televised debate behind the scenes since 2010. Uh, 
Mike Braun is the only person who never actually came over and spoke to the other uh, candidates. I mean, every other, every, Evan Bayh couldn't have been more gracious. Joe Donnelly's the nicest guy I've ever met in politics. Uh, Mike Braun, I think, is mostly incompetent, and I think he has a real shot of losing at, in the next cycle or the one after that. I think the only guy statewide right now that has the name ID, which is the only thing that really matters, is Pete Buttigieg. If he doesn't get the nomination and he doesn't want to do this as a a multi-cycle presidential seeking the ring uh, situation, he wants to crown himself the head of the Indiana Democrats, he has a chance at beating Mike Braun. But otherwise, it's it's these two until further notice. My motto is Todd Young forever. (laughs) Marines stick together. (laughs) The last... He's a Marine, you know. <laughs> last, really? Last, yeah. last question. <laughs> if you had to choose someone and you wanted Trump to be beaten, you mentioned Biden earlier. Would you stick with him or who would whom would you choose? I think Biden is the only shot the Democrats have to win because he's the only one with the shot who can win Pennsylvania, Michigan, and uh, Ohio and Wisconsin, which is their only path to the White House. I will not vote for Donald Trump. I think he's a moral abomination. I think he's been mostly incompetent, and he, on everything that tickled a libertarian's heart, he's been completely ineffectual at. Uh, see our forthcoming war with Iran. He's just been, uh, he's just been disappointing. And there's absolutely none of the Democrats that I would vote for, uh, and there's none of the libertarians currently that are running that I would vote for. So, so you're going to write in Shakira? I, I'm literally going to write in one of the two of you because at this point I have no candidate. If Justin Amash does, Justin Amash probably will lose his uh, congressional seat if he runs. And so he's very strongly looking at running as a libertarian. The party is staffing him already and saying, we've built the organization for you here. So if he runs, I'll be very excited. Well, Over McAfee? John McAfee. John no, wait McAfee. a second. First, first off... No one's heard of these people. <laughs> I'd vote for Pat McAfee over John McAfee. <laughs> Last question before we wrap up. Yes or no? Simple. Yes or no? Should President Trump stop tweeting? No. No. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, <laughs> a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and Aaron Shaler, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending. Our guests have been local talk show host and provocateur Rob Kendall and our lovely and talented the Vanna White of <laughs> Leaders and Legends Chris Spangle thank you both for being here my name is Robert Vane I'm your host and principal of Veteran Strategies hope you enjoyed the discussion thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Robert.